0: Well, what we've been doing the last few weeks is looking at some of the, some of the later ministry of Jesus. When I say later ministry, I, I can't really peg in the Bible exactly what time frame. It looks like the last few months is Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. But Jesus started heading towards Jerusalem and he, he seemed to travel like Cindy and I like to travel on all the back roads and the, hit every little small town and, and just kind of tour and see how lost you can get. And he seems to be doing that. Uh, I don't think he was ever lost. But his path would have been a tough one to follow. He's traveling around. And we've looked in the last couple of weeks at a, a, a story, a teaching out of Matthew. And it's been interesting. And, and, and what I'm trying to do intentionally is to pick something from each one of the different Gospels. Because if you start to read them and study them, you'll just, you, you will notice a distinct flavor in each one. You know, God wrote and inspired the Word of God through men. But these men, God chose them and used them, and they bring a a, a different personality, different life experiences. And, you know, Jesus did so many things that there's no way they could write it all down. And they wrote down what God inspired them to write down from their perspectives. And in Matthew, we looked at Matthew and we we discovered, you know, that Matthew was one of the original twelve. He was an eyewitness to everything. That, that he wrote about. He saw it all, and he wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. So that would be a little different than somebody writing to a Gentile audience. He was, making a, he was showing Jesus to the Jewish mind who had been so entangled in religion and the ceremonial law for so long. And he, he's doing everything he can to come at it from a perspective to enlighten them, to direct them towards Jesus, knowing that he's talking to that Jewish mind. And we looked at the Gospel of Mark last week. Mark was not one of the 12, but Mark, he traveled with Paul for a while. <laughs> he traveled with Paul and, 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 uh, uh, and the first missionary journey, and he kind of turned around and it caused a few problems. And, and uh, Mark didn't... Paul didn't want to take him with on the second one. And, and, but he was, he was a disciple and he was a, a missionary evangelist. And he's writing... Um, pretty much it would seem, from what he does, he he really is like he's stretching the Son of God in action. If you want to read about Mark, read Mark and read about the power and the miracles of God. Boy, that's a good gospel to go to. And that's what he's teaching. And it seems like he was probably teaching and, and really aiming at an audience outside of Palestine, reaching to maybe more of a Gentile, more of a pagan audience. Today we're going to look in the Gospel of Luke. Now Luke... Luke is kind of unique. He, he's the only Gentile that wrote in the Bible. He, he looks like, it, was, it looks like we're pretty certain he was born in Antioch of Syria, that he was very educated. He was probably more educated than any of the original apostles by far. He, he was a physician, a doctor, Dr. Luke. He was... Uh, a historian. As a matter of fact, modern-day historians look at his writing in the Gospel of Luke and they, they would call him a world-class historian. The way he had the geography and the timing and everything so accurate. He was, he was uh, uh, a disciple of Paul and Jesus. Uh, he was an evangelist. He was probably the first apologist. You know, one of those that telling you, here's what I believe and why type of guys, and he writes Luke, and I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, the first four verses, because he lays out so clearly, and I like the way he says all of this, he's writing it to a guy named Theophilus, we don't know much about Theophilus, I guess he was maybe a Roman, maybe he was someone in position of authority, maybe even the military, but he was a believer, and he writes this in Luke chapter 1, he lays out, here's what I've done, here's how I'm putting this together and why I'm writing it. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's referring to the original twelve. He says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Can you see the intellect in Luke? He says, I've done my homework. I've researched this thing. I've talked to the 12. I've talked to those that were eyewitnesses. And I'm going to put it together in such a way that you will know every detail that's important. You will get the history. I'm going to lay it out accurately. Kind of much more of almost a scientific method. So as he writes this, um, as near as I can tell, what we're going to be looking at is in chapter 15 of Luke. And in, if I go back, because I always try to go back and find out where are they at as best I can. Sometimes you get a nail down where you're at, and sometimes you can't really tell. In this one, I had to go back to Luke 13, verse 22, and it looks like it just simply says, Jesus and his disciples, they're passing through a bunch of small towns and villages, and in each one they come to, they're teaching as they're heading towards Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way. They're walking, hitting all the little towns, all the villages, and teaching, preaching, and doing unbelievable amount of miracles. Healing almost became the norm. It says everywhere they'd go, they'd just heal somebody, and they'd bring everybody they could find that had a problem. And he would cast out demons and heal sicknesses and diseases and infirmities, and everywhere he would go. And then there was always this other group. Wherever he would go, there was always this other group the religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders. And everywhere he would go, and he'd do all these amazing signs and wonders, and he'd give these teachings that they'd go, Wow, how does anybody know that? He speaks with such amazing authority. And the Pharisees were already trying to set him up. So they'd get somebody to go and ask a question. Trying to, trying to sort of ask a trick question. How can we trip this man up? There's getting too many popu- he's getting too popular. Too many people are following him. They're afraid of a couple things. One, their position of prestige and power is being threatened by this guy, Jesus. And they didn't like it. And every time that they would come and try to set the trap, set the snare for him by asking him a question, the poor person that asked the question had to walk away kind of with his tail between his legs and all the other people go, wow, this guy's amazing. The Pharisees were smart enough to send some underlings usually, so they didn't get humiliated themselves. And this would take place over and over again. And that's the immediate context of what we're going to look at in chapter 15. Jesus has been teaching and doing miracles in the midst of his his disciples and many other followers. By this time, everywhere he went, there would be a, a crowd would come. He couldn't hardly get away to be alone to pray. People would come. And he's doing all of these things. And as I said, the Pharisees are there. The religious leaders, the scribes are there. The scribes are the ones that were transcribing the, the words, the, the Old Testament, the prophets. They were the, and they were considered kind of like the, these good theologians. If we need somebody to help explain and expound upon the law, we'd, we'd go get a scribe. And all of these, these religious people were there with him everywhere. He would go, and he would continue to just do his miracles. And in Luke chapter 15... Verses 1 and 2 kind of sets the stage for what we're going to look at. It says this, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. All the tax collectors, they hated the tax collectors. The tax collectors in those days, Rome would say, We need this many taxes, anything you get above that's yours to keep. Wouldn't you like that job if you're a crook? And that's what they were. So the tax collectors and then it's sinners. It throws all the rest of the people into that category of sinners. says They're all coming to Jesus. And of course, the religious leaders, instead of rejoicing, were fearful. And in this particular case, in verse 2, it says, the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble back and forth. Can't you just see these guys in their fancy hats and outfits and... Religious, pious attitudes leaning over to each other. and Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Look at this. We got sinners. He's hanging out with sinners. He's hanging out with tax collectors. He is hanging out with the worst of the worst. What's wrong with this guy? Doesn't he understand? He's He's even eating with them. He's fellowshipping with them. And Jesus knows all this. He understands the grumbling and what's going on. And Jesus teaches then in a parable. And a parable is simply using a story, a simple common story, to make a spiritual or moral point. And sometimes when you go through the Bible, you'll see Jesus teaches in parables. He speaks in these parables, and he does it so that the people don't get it. They don't understand so their understanding is blinded. That's his intent. And, and after that, you'll see, usually he gets together with the disciples. You can almost see them. They get over in a circle and they say, God, Jesus, what were you just talking about? And he would then explain the whole parable to them. But there are other times. He would take a parable, kind of like slapping you in the face. He'd come with this simple story, and if you got it, and you were the point of his parable, you got it. And that's what he's doing here. So what sets the stage for these these series of three parables are these religious leaders, these pious Pharisees and scribes sitting there looking at the sinners, those terrible sinners, those tax collectors, and Jesus is lying and eating with them and they're grumbling and complaining. And Jesus, and I can almost just see him just as sweet as could be, says, let me tell you a couple stories. The first story is about a, a guy who has sheep, a shepherd, And he says, the shepherd has 99 sheep, but there's one that's lost. That lost sheep. And he says, he would leave the 99. He'd leave all 99 of them. And he'd go and he'd look for the one lost sheep. And when he'd find him, he wouldn't kick him. He wouldn't scream at him. He wouldn't yell at him. He'd go and he'd pick up that lost sheep and he'd throw it over his shoulders and he'd take it back to the flock rejoicing at the one that was lost. As a matter of fact, he says, he'd go get all the nearby shepherds and he'd say, come on over. We're going to celebrate. I found the lost sheep and they would rejoice. And then it takes it even a step further. He says, there will be more joy in heaven. Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. But then, I can just about imagine the Pharisees and the religious people are kind of just moving in their seats like, Oh, that hurt. And Jesus doesn't hardly take a breath and he says, And there was this lady who had 10 silver coins and she lost one of them. And she did everything she could do to find that coin in her house. She was looking under every bed and every piece of furniture. She was looking everywhere. And she found the lost coin. And she was so excited, she called her friends and they all rejoiced together about the one that was lost. And again it says, I'll tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God for one sinner who repents. Oh, those Pharisees got to be hating it by now. Jesus is making clear that the good shepherd, Jesus, is going after and seeking those who are lost. Jesus, at another time, had said, "You know, when you're well and healthy, you don't need a doctor. It's the sick that need the doctor." You may not have known it, but every single one of us in here were suffering with a terminal disease, and we needed a doctor. The disease was sin, and Jesus was the doctor. He became sin on our behalf, and, and we can be totally free. Totally free to live, born again, because of what Jesus did. The third parable is a little bit different, and it's a little bit longer. And for many people, if you grew up in church, it's a, it's a parable you've, you're familiar with. And it's a parable I really, really like. And I think a lot of people do because it's so easy to relate to this parable in our natural lives, in our own lives, in one way or another. And it's the parable we call the prodigal son. And really, the the, the star of the parable isn't the prodigal son, it's the father. And in this parable, there's three main characters, and I would like to say there's a fourth one who's hidden behind the scenes. The father represents God the father. Remember who Jesus is talking to now and the setup for this, those Pharisees are grumbling and complaining. So the younger son is a picture of the sinner who goes away. And then there's an older son that we don't talk about much who represents the Pharisees, the self-righteous, the religious leaders of the day. And the story is set and it starts in, in verse... 13, 12 actually, and it jumps into it right away. It's right away. Here's this father who's evidently got some property, got some livestock, probably quite a bit the way it looks. And his younger son comes up to him and says, I mean, just like, Dad, I want my inheritance. Now, in our culture today, that would seem really, really weird because no one gets inheritance. Until the owner dies. Well, back in that day, you could receive your inheritance before the master, before the father had passed away. And in Deuteronomy, when it lays it out in the law, they covered everything. Basically, it says that the younger gets one third and the oldest son gets two thirds. He gets twice as much. So the younger son technically was within his rights to come and ask for his inheritance but it was a great sign of disrespect. It was a picture showing that, you know, Dad, I really don't care about you. I want my money. I want my inheritance. I don't care. His heart was far from the father's heart before it ever starts the story. And then it says, in just a few days, he, said, he decides to depart for a far country, a distant country. So he no more than had his property, cashed it out however he could and took off, free to go do whatever he wanted, free to go and enjoy all the pleasures that his inheritance could purchase for him. He was off and running. When he left, it says he goes to a far country. And, I, and in this whole story, I try to keep in mind the pictures of... The father is God and we've got the religious son and we've got the rebellious son. And he's taken his inheritance, disrespecting the father and going off to satisfy the lusts of his flesh. And he's going to the far country and the farther you go, the farther you're getting away from the father. The farther you travel, the farther you're getting away from God. It's like you just can't stop. There's a momentum when you start to go down that path. And he goes to the far country and he squanders his estate, it says. It says, my translation says that it's, he squanders his estate. And the reason I titled the, the, the message this morning, the parable of the prodigal son, is it our story or is it your story? Is because it's so easy for me and maybe many of you to see yourself in this story somewhere at some time. And here it says he took and he squandered his estate with loose living. Now that phrase, with loose living, is interesting. Basically, it, it translates most directly into with harlots, prostitutes. But it's also interesting, the harlots and prostitutes were also a metaphor for idolatry. So whatever he spent it on, it was a total waste of resources. the further he would go into the distant lands, wasting his money on a wasted life. And there's such a picture there for us when we start chasing the things of the world, when we abandon what the Word of God tells us and teaches us, when we abandon and start moving away from the Father's heart, and the world starts to capture our heart, we're going to go further and further into that distant land, wasting all of our resources on those things that we think are going to satisfy. Those things that we think we really want. And it just keeps us taking this further and further. And it never, ever satisfies. It just is never enough. And this is the trap he's in. He's squandering it all squandering his whole whole estate, his whole inheritance, trying to find what he thought he needed, what would satisfy. And then we see in verse 13, it says, everything was gone. He wasted it all. Verse 14, now when he had spent everything, and I don't know I'm just going by what it says exactly, but to me it seems significant. God let him go. And he will let us go. Because he loves us enough not to control us like robots. He will let us go. And it says, when he had lost everything. Nowadays we say, have you reached bottom yet? He had lost everything and then a severe famine came into the land. And I think it's significant that all his resources were gone. He could do nothing for himself anymore, and then it got worse. Because now there was nowhere to turn in your own strength. It was all gone. And as we continue down that path away from God, prodigals will reach that point where everything's gone a long ways from the Lord. The world absolutely cannot fill that void in us, that thing in our spirit, that thing in our soul that only God can fill. We were created. We were created with that hole, so to speak. And that hole can only be filled by God. It's the only thing that satisfies our soul. It's the only thing. And most of the world spends their life trying to fill that hole with stuff that doesn't fill it. Really, for the world and the worldly things that we try to fill it with, it becomes not a hole, it becomes a bottomless pit. That no matter what you put in there, thinking that it's going to bring you joy, bring you peace, bring you contentment, thinking that these things are going to finally make me happy, it's never enough. It's never enough. There's always got to be more. There's got to be more. It's got to be something different. We'll try it. You know, there's so many metaphors that I could use to picture how we've chased worldly things and found ourselves with everything gone, famine in our land, our life, and there's nothing that we can put in that hole. And that's the place he finds himself. And verse 15 says this, and he went and attached himself to one of the citizens. Now, if, if, you, if you've never really just kind of took apart this story, you might not have even thought twice about that statement. But think of his situation. He has nothing. His resources are gone. And so what does he do? It says he attaches himself to a citizen of that distant land. He's going to the wrong source like we all so often do. We find ourselves in this horrible place, this big mess, and then look who we go and turn to so often. Those that are just a hair above us in that deep hole. You know, it's like saying, I really, 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 really need marriage counseling because my marriage is a little rocky. Let's go talk to a di- divorce attorney. You'd go, what? But that's what we do. Who do we see? You know, there every prisoner in prison goes to the local attorney who's in the cell next to him, locked up for legal advice. That's how we get. We become absolutely stupid. Our mind becomes worthless when we get out in that place. And, you know, I may be exaggerating. You say, gee, I've never felt stupid. Well, I have. And when you get there, you're like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And here it says, he attached himself to a citizen of the area. What does that mean? It means he got a job. And you might go, good, good idea. But he, he got a job that no Jewish boy is ever going to want. He got a job with the pigs. Now, if you're not familiar with the Jewish culture, that's a no-go. They're unclean. You don't just not eat pork, you don't touch pork. You try not to smell pork. As far from pork as you can get, and there he sits. That's his job, taking care of the hogs. He had reached the absolute depth to which sin could take him. When we try to use the things of the world to serve us, we end up serving the world. It is a snare that the devil sets. And when we start to take the bait, it always looks pretty good. It looks enticing. For this young son, he had his inheritance. He evidently cashed it out and took it all with him. And he was going out into the world free. I don't have to listen to Father anymore. And I'm going to go out in the world and look at all of the things that are out there to entice me, to satisfy me. This is going to be such a great time. And it looked like a great time. Satan's bait always looks like a great time. Or you wouldn't take the bait. But when you take the bait, you're in the trap. You're in the snare. And it continues to take us deeper and further, down the wrong road. In verse 16, it says, at the end of the verse, no one was giving anything to him. That's so sad. But it's so real. He had reached a place where he was alone. He was in a far distant land. There was no family. There was no relatives. He had no friends. He was a Jewish boy out in the pasture with the pigs. Starving. Eating the pods that the pigs were eating. To survive. Alone. No one there. No one cared. Or least that's what he would have thought. That no one cared. And then it says in verse 17, Finally he came to his senses. And I love that verse, or that part of the verse. Finally, he came to his senses. And I I think it's like, the best way, I use this phrase a lot when I talk about this with people one-on-one. It's like he had a revelation. When you get so deep into sin, it's like your brain has become completely deranged, nearly insane. You're kind of almost half into madness. You just, you can't think straight. And it says, he had a revelation. He came to his senses. And I believe that was God. That was God. And he came to his senses, and his revelation doesn't maybe seem like much, but this shows you how blinded he was. It says he came to his senses, and he realized, God, my dad's servants have it better than me. I'm going to go home to the Father. And it's interesting, he continued to call him Father. I'm going to go home to Father and see if he won't let me be one of his servants. He came to his senses. I'll be one of his servants. I'm no longer a son. I'm not worthy. Not worthy to be a son. He had been brought to this place where probably nothing more than a sense of dread caused him to be awakened to receive this revelation. And as soon as he did, there's a change of heart that takes place. We see a picture of the beginning of repentance. Immediately, he confesses, I am so unworthy. Well, guess what? He never was. He never was worthy. That's part of his original deception. He thought he deserved something. That's like you and me going to God and say, well, God, the Bible says you have an inheritance for me. Cough it up. It's time for me to have a little fun. I deserve it. After all, look at how good I've been. I've done so many nice things. And I've even said in your name, somehow or other, we get this idea we're worthy. That's called a pharisaical attitude. We become like the Pharisees. We become prideful. And that's where this young son was. And now he's to a place where he declares himself unworthy, which is a great improvement, but he was never worthy. And neither were you or I. You and I were never worthy. We did not deserve to be saved. We did not deserve to have eternal life secure. We did not deserve to have Jesus take those nails and the beating for, my, for us in our place. We didn't deserve it. Never could. Never could. Never would have. No one could. And yet he did. Because we're his sons and daughters. We're of value to him. Change of heart. Confession of his sin. Humility that comes. And he says, Make me as one of your hired men. That's his plan. He's he's rehearsing this in his mind. He and he's rehearsing it. There's no sense of manipulation. It's just like there's a sense of finally a revelation that, you know what, I, I sinned against my father and I sinned against God. And he confesses it. And he says, I'm going to go. In verse 20, he got up. He got up. And he went to his father. You know, when we truly confess, there needs to be a change. There needs to be a, a turning around. There needs to be a getting up and living life differently. I'm sorry is not the same as I confess. When we confess we're acknowledging our need for that savior. That we know what we did was wrong and we want to get back on the right track. We have to get up and do something. So he goes back and I can only imagine in the story what that young man's mindset might have been as he's walking Can you imagine what he probably looked like? Probably smelt like? He'd been taking care of pigs in a pasture. He'd been traveling. His clothes were probably in rags. He was probably hard to even recognize. And he's knowing he's walking up there and he is going to have to go and face his father who he totally disrespected. Who he totally turned away from. His heart and the father's heart We're not in the same place. And he was going to have to go and humble himself before his father. Thinking where he had been, there was no one who cared. No one to help him. No one to pity him. Just hoping that his father would allow him to be the lowest of his servants so he could eat. But oh, he was wrong. The scene is such a wonderful scene in my mind to picture coming up that path towards your father's place, and you realize there he stands, he's looking. He's probably been doing that every day since the day you left. He's been looking and he's been waiting. And he's not looking and waiting to come and condemn you. He's not coming to throw all of this in your face and say, I told you so. He's not coming and looking for you so he can make you the lowest of his slaves. He's not doing any of those things. He's waiting to receive you into his arms. He's standing there with his arms extended, filled with love, filled with compassion, been waiting and praying for his child to come home. God, what a picture. And it's so easy when we get on that far country and we've gotten our hearts so far from God and we're in that place, we can't imagine that there's somebody who would love us that much. So oftentimes people will come up with this I can't go back, it's too late. I've blown it too bad. And they have that attitude in their head towards God. Yeah, I remember. I, I, I love the Lord. I remember when He saved me. I remember. It was so good. And geez, I remember when I started going down the wrong path. And I had opportunities to turn around, but you know, I just kept going. It's too late. Well, the story, the, the, the main point of this story is there is a father waiting waiting, desiring, filled with compassion, waiting for us to turn around and come back, to confess those things in our life that need to be confessed of. And he's not waiting there with a big stick. He's not got his finger pointing in your face and lecturing you. He's not saying, I told you so. How could you be so stupid? And we see that picture. It says his father sees him coming. Isn't that a great picture? He sees him coming and he runs out and it says he throws himself around his son's neck almost as if the father can't stand on his own. He's so broken and and he's weeping and it says he's embracing him and it says he's kissing him. And if you study the word, he's kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. It's like some of you women with a baby. You just can't quit quit kissing him. That's how he is. He is just He's just so in love and so excited that his son, who was lost, has returned. And then we see in verses 21 through 24 what the father does. He tells one of his servants, he says, go and get my best, get the best robe. Get these rags off him and put that robe on him. That robe of rags needs to go. And for us, to me, it's just this picture of when we accept Jesus Christ, He takes off all our dirty clothes and He puts on us the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. God, what an amazing thing He does. So when He looks at Mike, He doesn't see Mike with being all those things Mike should have never been. He sees me through the righteousness of Christ. And that's the robe He puts on His Son. And then it says, get Him the ring. And it's a signet ring is what they called it. And that signet ring represents authority and sonship. It would be the ring that they would use if you were going to seal a letter with wax. Everybody would know that's the family of the Nelsons. That's their ring. This is the son of Nelson. And he gives him that ring. And then he says, put shoes on his feet. It's kind of a weird thing. And, and you can't find this in the Scripture. I looked, but historians would say back in that time, it was most common that the, the slaves... We're barefoot. But the shoes, the sandals, were the signs of a free man. He puts sandals on his feet. And then he says, and go get the fatted calf. We're going to have a party like they've never seen before on our farm. And he goes and gets the fatted calf. It's a feast of welcoming home and rejoicing. And it comes back to those first two parables, where it says the, there will be rejoicing in the presence of angels in heaven when that one lost returns. And here it is—he's—he's he's having a party. The lost son, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prodigals that return to God. And it would be so nice if the story ended there, but it doesn't, because there is another son. The older son who's out in the field working while the younger son's been out partying, wasting all his money. And it says he starts coming back to the house and he hears the noise. He hears the music and dancing and he hears there's a celebration and one of the servants comes and he says, what in the world's going on back at the house? I'm going to read this and starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could possibly be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look. For so many years, I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and you have never given me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came home, he has devoured your wealth with prostitutes and then you killed the fatted calf for him. The, the, The words of Jesus as he's telling this parable had to just be echoing in the mind of the Pharisees who had been sitting there grumbling about the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus was fellowshipping with, that he was eating with, that he was laying hands on and healing, restoring sight to their blindness, opening their ears, casting out demons. And by now they're looking at this and we see in the older son that attitude of the Pharisee. What are you doing for him? I deserve this, I've always obeyed you, but we're seeing his heart revealed even in obedience. He might have been obeying, but his heart wasn't right with the father. That religious spirit was there in his son. Notice when you read those verses that the father went out for the older son too. It says, he went out and pleaded with them to come in. But he still refused to come in. I've never sinned and you've never given me. Can you imagine? When we look at the story of the prodigal, it's so much more about the father than it is the son. But I think we can relate to different aspects of it. Many of us have walked away for different seasons of our life and been like that prodigal. And God has drawn us back in His mercy, His grace. Many of us have prodigals in our own families, friends that we know that have strayed away. We need to make sure that we are never like the older son. We need to make sure that we are not that one who would stand there and judge. And be critical. Father, God is just waiting to embrace them, to welcome them back into that loving, intimate relationship with Him. And that's how His church should be. That's how we should be. You know, you've probably read or seen stories on the internet or read them in books too about I, one of my favorites was of a new pastor. He was going to be starting at this church. But instead of coming in all decked out like his pastoral outfit should look, he had dressed up like as a bum. Stinky, dirty bum. And when he came into the church, everybody just kind of parted like the Red Sea. Wanted nothing to do with him. He walked to the front and the guy usher came to escort him to the back. And then one of the elders or deacons of the church got up to introduce the new pastor and the people were all excited and anticipating. And the guy gets up from the back row and walks to the front of the church. God, what a terrible day that must have been for a whole lot of people in that church. But if we're not careful, we can project that same kind of image. You know, we want to see those come into the building here. Those come into our fellowship that Jesus wants to have in that fellowship. Those that are lost. Those that are hurting. Those that are downtrodden. Those that have, may have years ago accepted Christ and they've walked away. And God has drawn them back. And the last thing we want to ever be is that pharisaical older brother who meets them at the door and watches him turn around and walk away. Who are we? Are we in the story? I hope our hearts are in line with the Father's hearts. That's where we need to be. Somebody here may be like that prodigal. You may have convinced yourself that you can never get back. You're trying to do the right things. You're coming to church, for goodness sakes. But in your heart, you still have this idea that somehow or other you're not good enough for God. That you have done too many things and and been a certain way that there's no way He could truly let you back in to that place of intimacy with him. That's a lie from the devil. He's waiting with his arms open wide. And if we have that pharisaical idea, that pharisaical heart, that legalistic, judgmental, critical spirit, we need to repent, confess it immediately, and get right with the Lord. We are to be the ambassador of Christ. We are being transformed every day As we allow the Holy Spirit to work into the image of Christ. So we have the Father's heart. And we can extend that Father's heart to all who would come. Whether it be into this building or we meet in the streets. Meet in our places of work, wherever it is. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this amazing story that Jesus told And God, I pray that we would respond in the way that you would desire us to respond. If we see our story in there somewhere, God, give us the grace to respond in an appropriate way. Lord, I pray that we would not live in that distant land, that we would return to the Father. I pray for our families and friends, relatives, those that we might know that are in that place, Pray, God, that you would just draw them by your sweet spirit back to yourself. And Lord, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see as you see people. God, that our heart would break as yours breaks. God, that we would experience your compassion through us, that we could minister that compassion to those that are so in need. God, we pray that in all these things, you'd receive all the glory and all the honor. And Lord, now I also pray that you would bless the the food that we're about to eat, bless our time of fellowship. God, I pray that you would watch over us this week as we travel. We thank you for the beautiful weather that's been predicted. We just rejoice as we near this time of spring and, and the Easter season and talk about the new birth in Christ, even as we see your creation all around us coming back to life. God, we just thank you so much that we can call you Father. And we pray, God, that our lives would bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.